Welcome to Divergent Unicorns, a podcast created to provide actionable steps to people that have been typically underrepresented in the venture and startup landscape. I'm your host, Behavia Stewart. And I'm your host, Ema Essien. We are both HBCU VC fellows and have experience in venture capital. Today, we will be speaking with Juan Pablo, who is a partner at Action Potential VC, which is a growth stage venture firm that has a focus on healthcare. And he is also a founding member of Latinx VC. Let's hop right on in. So hello, everyone. We are here with Juan Pablo. He is a partner at Action Potential Venture Capital. So hey, Juan, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us about your journey? Like, how did you get into healthcare venture capital? Yeah, thank you for having me, Davia, and, and really appreciate uh, you know, having an opportunity to talk to the audience here at HBCU Podcast. So um, my path into healthcare venture capital came from uh, starting as an engineer, studying electrical engineering, um, doing that for undergraduate, doing it for a master's degree. During my master's degree at Stanford, I was involved sort of intimately with a medical device um, program called the biodesign program. And I worked closely with physicians in the hospital who were developing, you know, either tools for research or uh, their own sort of uh, potential new medical devices and helping them with that as a research assistant and RA. Um, And from there, I went off to work in industry to work at Medtronic uh, in both engineering and marketing capacities in their cardiovascular division in Boston. did a short stint at uh, Eli Lilly. In fact, Eli Lilly, I have to give him a little bit of a shout out here because um, they uh, they gave me a fellowship to the Stanford GSB Business School. It was um, it, It's intended for, it's called the Benini Fellowship, and it's intended for one underrepresented minority uh, each class of the GSB. So there's one, one new Benini Fellow every year. And as part of that, I spent a year at Eli Lilly in Indianapolis, working on the pharma side of the industry, um, and and went to business school uh, where where they sponsored me. Um, after or during business school, I actually took an internship at a healthcare venture fund called Morgan Thaler Ventures on Sand Hill Road, um, and you know that turned into a full time offer at the beginning of my second year in business school, uh, which I gladly accepted. And and you know wasn't my initial intent to get into venture capital. Uh, I kind of thought I was going to become an entrepreneur founder, um, but I had such a great experience with that team um, and, and really came to love the venture side of things that, um, that I jumped on it after graduating business school. So that was in 2010 timeframe. Wow, that's pretty cool. So you actually have direct experience working in healthcare. Wow. So I'm assuming you can give like great guidance to the companies that you invest in in terms of like navigating that space. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to, I think, some of it from my operating experience when it's relevant, because I was in a very specific area. Um, uh, you know, I think my network that I developed by working at uh, Medtronic and Eli Lilly really helped a lot, uh, because they're folks that I, to this day, stay in touch with and uh, lean on when I'm looking for, you know, perhaps some expertise in a particular area. Um, and you know, I do think it helps give you credibility. Uh, and I know it helped me land my internship um, in venture capital just by virtue of being able to say, hey, you know, I'm 
familiar with the industry. I've seen a, a certain number of data points out there on what looks good, what, what doesn't. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Operating experience, I think, is one really key thing that can help uh, give sort of the foot, put the foot in the door and, and, and give a leg up getting into venture. Yeah. And so now you you currently have the role as a partner at at Action Potential. Action Potential. Capital. Yeah. And so can you tell us about what you look for in a company? Um, like what makes a great startup to you? So, you know, it's oftentimes pretty specific to the sector I'm in, which, you know, meaning it, it may be a little bit different for tech founder software businesses versus uh, life sciences, med device or biotech. But in what I do most, uh, mostly now is, is life sciences and med, med device, you know, it's key that the, the people are um, trustworthy, honest, transparent. Um, you know, we really like sort of tenacious problem solvers. We're just never satisfied not knowing um, and, and are constantly digging to find the, the answers. Um, you know, folks who are confident but humble, um, folks who seek help when, you know, they need it rather than trying to deny that they need it or, um, and, and, you know, to, to us, that's the recipe for winning in the, in the long haul. Um, you know, folks who have other, you know, former colleagues and employees wanting to work with them again uh, is terrific. I mean, it just speaks uh, about their culture that they've, you know, they develop their management style. Um, and then, of course, just their overall ability to sort of sell and recruit, uh, sell the story, fundraise, hire great people. Um, so that combination is is rare, but something we're always looking for. Um, you know, having done it before is terrific. Having some, some uh, track record, uh, ideally in starting a company helps because it just means there's fewer lessons to learn along the way, but that's frankly not always you know, possible and, and not always the case when you have, you know, uh, a first time entrepreneur founder coming up with a great idea or passionate about something. So I, I guess like um, a question that I have, given the industry of healthcare, I guess a lot of the founders that may be starting these types of companies, they may be, I guess, scientists or like really smart people that know science on a deep level. Do you, do you ever find that when they are pitching to you that sometimes they focus like too much on the science, which can be very complicated for like a business person who doesn't necessarily understand versus like the business model. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is a common mistake or not mistake, but just tendency, you know, for a lot of scientific or technical founders. Um, listen, I, I think when we're, it's, it's, it's an important um, ability to be able to articulate how, you know, what you're trying to develop works and why it should work. Um, I think the answer is best given when it can be given simply and in layman terms, because you're often talking to a broad audience. Um, even at a, a venture fund, you know, like the ones that we work in, there are some that are very, you know, some people, partners are very focused on medical devices, others on, um, on biotech, you know, some that have experience with cancer and others with more with cardiovascular um, or women's health or what have you. And so just speak, speaking on a, at a basic level um, with the ability to go deeper either themselves or just, you know, handing it off to a colleague or saying, I'm going to follow up with a lot more detail there. I don't, you know, need to get into the weeds here today. Um, you have to be able to tell the full story about the business model, the market opportunity, the differentiation, 
Um, and, and, you know, if you spend too long in the weeds or getting, trying to, you know, perhaps speak over somebody's head who's not absorbing at all, um, it's just not productive for, for anybody. So I think finding that right balance and know, know your audience. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit about the diligence process for healthcare startups or life sciences, um, given, you know, they, I guess I would, I don't know if you would say they are more risky given they directly impact someone's health, but given like requirements such as like FDA approval and those types of things, like how do you look at it? Is the, is the way that you look at a company in terms of diligence a little different from like maybe a consumer startup? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the risk is different. Uh, yeah. I do think that safety um, is, you know, foremost in, in the, the minds of the founders, the regulatory bodies, the physicians that are considering, you know, either being part of a clinical trial, um, certainly the patients that are, uh, you know, involved in those studies. So there is a different type of risk where it's health um, and life and, 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 you know, we take it really seriously. Um, you know, the regular regulatory bodies like FDA, um, like those in, in uh, the rest of the world really, you know, have checks and balances in place or, you know, stage gate kind of procedures to make sure you've done the testing on the bench and oftentimes in uh, preclinical animal models um, or, uh, you know, and, and have fail safes in place for your technologies, depending on how they interact with the patient. So, you know, it is different risk, but um, from an execution perspective, from a startup, you know, that is something that, uh, that, that, that you can know going in most often in terms of how much you need to um, address the particular regulatory requirements. Um, and, you know, that for investors is, for those that are experienced investing in that area um, is also something that is generally known. Um, so, so that can be assessed a, during a diligence process. There are other things that are a function of the clinical data generated or um, the market and, and insurance policies, for instance, reimbursement, you know, and how it gets paid for. It's a critical difference between a consumer, uh, direct to consumer product or something that gets paid for by insurance and is reimbursable. Um, and, you know, I think that business model, those are very different business models, even in medical devices and what we invest in, it's not always, um, clear that the company will begin commercializing with a reimbursement in place, a reimbursed, uh, you know, sort of code in place. They may start by selling directly to consumers and having patients pay out of pocket. So, um, with a transition in mind down the line, you, you, you have to evaluate both scenarios. Would patients pay? out of pocket for this technology and um, you know can you generate enough data uh, and health economic data too to support Medicare, Medicaid, uh, private payers to reimburse it. So there are a variety of other things that go beyond purely the market and the technology um, and the people uh, such as IP and intellectual property tends to be more important I would say in some of these longer development cycle type um, healthcare companies and life science companies. Um, but, but again, it's, so it's a different type of investing. It's a different type of company formation, but it's, it's um, something that that's manageable and, and navigable, navigable once you kind of know what to look out for. Yeah. And I see that you are um, a board member on like a few startups. So can you tell us um, about a startup that you've invested in and why you believe they were a winner? 
Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I think we believe all our companies are, oh, yeah, are sure. winners, of course. Um, but that's true of most VCs, right? And 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 most of our companies. Thankfully, um, yeah, we have a lot. I have a lot that I could talk about. I guess instead of going deep on any one, I'll maybe touch on a few. I'd just say that um, you know, what, what in the field that we invest in, which is predominantly neurostimulation, um, therapeutic neurostimulation, so stimulating a nerve to treat a chronic disease uh, instead of using drug therapy, for instance. Um, we have a company called Saluda Medical that stimulates the spinal cord to treat chronic back pain and leg pain. And their uh, differentiation and, and platform technology is a is sort of first in class that simultaneously records what the spinal cord uh, responses to that stimulation to dial in the perfect settings for that patient to, to optimize the long-term pain relief. Um, and frankly, just to have some sort of feedback from the body that says, you know, uh, we're doing what we expect to do under all circumstances of, uh, in all postures, positions, um, independent of, of, you know, your, your uh, orientation that the therapy is being optimized. So that's a company out of Sydney, Australia um, that we've invested in. Another one called Nuspera Medical actually has a black CEO founder, Milton Morris, um, and the company has developed a wireless powering technology out of Stanford uh, to stimulate small um, uh, electrodes or neurostimulators deep in the body um, and has a, also a platform technology that can be used you know, throughout the body and is, is very much optimized for uh, sending wireless energy um, and, and finding uh, its target in the body independent of orientation, depth, size, et cetera, some technical challenges that have been hard to overcome up until now. Um, and that company's uh, in, in clinical trials. Um, we have an investment in a company called Cala Health, which is a um, neurostimulator that's actually worn on a wrist to treat uh, essential tremor and has um, a female technical founder out of Stanford. Her name's Kate Rosenbluth, uh, and CEO's name is Renee Ryan. And uh, they've, they're now commercially um, uh, available, FDA approved and cleared, um, and are developing a variety of um, therapies that can be uh, essentially sold, prescribed to a patient uh, by a, a neurologist or a physician and have the product shipped to them um, and, and body worn as opposed to being permanently implantable. Um, and uh, and we our last investment we just made last week was announced last week is a company called Echo Imaging and it's a new category of ultrasound technology ultrasound on a chip um, that's hoping to drive access to medical imaging around the world by bringing the cost uh, down greatly and um, allow you know, connect to an iPhone or uh, Android phone um, and allow. Uh, physicians at the point of care to get the information they need um, to make better clinical decisions and, and independent of uh, whether or not, you know, that's in a developed uh, market with a high, high tech hospital system um, or in the field. Um, so those are just some examples of different companies we've invested in. Wow, sounds like some really cool and impactful investments. So I guess to pivot a little bit, something that um, we hear about often in the startup and VC space is about the lack of uh, minority VCs and in return, a lack of founders receiving capital. And you co-founded an organization, Latinx VC, 
Can you tell us about this organization and why you believe that it is important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Latinx VC was founded last year, um, and it was really inspired. A friend of mine, Jacob Mullins, who's at Shasta Ventures, um, uh, was a uh, Kaufman fellow, classmate of uh, Elliot Robinson, who started Black VC with uh, their founding board. Um, we've essentially look to, uh, you know, in many ways mirror the good work that they have started to do. Uh, they, they started Black VC three or four years, I think, before we, we started Latinx VC, but with a similar mission of increasing the representation of uh, Black and Brown and, and specifically Latino, Latina uh, venture capitalists in the industry, um, helping, um, you know, minorities and uh, enter into the industry, be promoted, help them get to check writing positions, partnership, partner level positions in venture funds, help them, uh, those that are looking to raise their own venture funds as emerging managers, connect with LPs, um, help become a bit more of uh, a central repository for connecting job opportunities with from credible firms to credible candidates. So we do some vetting um, of candidates when we match make and, and, and put forward uh, candidates. And, you know, uh, Going forward, I think our ambitions are growing, and, and perhaps we may start to do some um, some content and mentorship and formal programs. Um, and I think with that, we'll we'll be doing fundraising as well to support those activities. Um, so these are it's 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 very much in motion. But we have a founding board of I believe it's about nine of us, um, and you can take a look more at LatinxVCs.com. Um, if anybody's interested in, in learning more, certainly uh, follow us on Twitter and, and LinkedIn as well. Yeah, it's really cool um, from what I've seen on your on the website. And I guess like for you, how do you see the future of like venture capital in regards to more black and brown people having investment decisions in or raising funding rounds? Like, I guess the type of impact they may, that, that that could have. Yeah, no, it's the it's the key question we are always asking ourselves, and um, you know, no question about it. It's it's increasing slowly, but I think we're all trying to make sure the slope of that line goes up um, more aggressively, and that um, the glass ceiling is broken so that you know, uh, black and brown investors can be decision makers in funds, can be. Uh, uh, you know, have the relationships with the LPs that are longer lasting. Um, and it starts with access, you know, the, the access to those, it's, it's, it's a bit of a cottage industry, venture capital, and it's largely, um, uh, you know, an apprenticeship model historically. Uh, it's not the only way to do it, but that's how many folks who've entered VC have, have learned is under the wings of, um, you know, more senior investors. But if you don't have access by, via your networks, via your, you know, university, your, your alumni base, um, whatever that is, it's, it's much more challenging to even have, to even be considered. Um, and then once you're even considered, you know, are, do you look and, and uh, act like the people there that are hiring? And, you know, we all know that that makes a huge uh, impact subconsciously and, and bias around how you know, people are ultimately selected for these roles. So, you know, I think what we're trying to do is, and I know HBCU VC is, is, shares this, is really trying to uh, educate all sides, all parts of that spectrum, both the candidates that are coming up um, on how to act with 
you know, confidence, conviction, generate the depth of knowledge, um, improve their communication skills and know the terminology, um, find the allies in the industry and, 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 and accept that help, um, you know, naturally needing need to go and perform and ex exceed expectations. Um, you know, all, all of all of the venture industry is largely weighed on financial returns. And so at the end of the day, you have to also be, um, you know, a top investor with, um, and, and that takes time to, to, to determine and to be established. Um, so there's, there's a lot of growing that takes place, but we're also educating, we're trying to educate the hiring um, partners. And um, that's both in traditional institutional VCs, but also in corporate ventures capital. And, and as we've seen historically, corporate VC has been a bit more um, accessible to black and brown uh, investors, um, especially when it comes to check writing levels and so forth. So, um, you know, we're really um, trying to, to, to drive some change in, in, you know, our lifetime so we can have a measurable impact on this industry and obviously it trickles down to what founders what companies are funded what communities are funded uh, and who then has the opportunity to you know pay it forward to the next generation and so um, yeah I mean it's it's a complex challenge but I think there's enough people talking about it now um, that I'm hopeful that we'll see see real uh, you know changes in representation in the next uh, you know five years or so yeah and I guess do you have any advice to I guess minority founders that are looking to raise around I'm like I, I guess you mentioned like not having access to like networks is a common challenge so like how how do these founders get over you know these common challenges that make it difficult for them to like actually raise funding to scale their business yeah I mean, it's um th there are many ways to go about doing it but I do think that some of the most you know, go to where people are. So, you know, one is aggressive networking. That's something I've always, and by aggressive networking, I just mean consistent, yeah. <laughs> prioritized networking. Um, obviously, doing it in the right way matters, but you know that that network takes time to build, and there's no better time than now. And so, just starting, and, and it has um, network effects, and it has sort of exponential ability to to really. Um, pay dividends perhaps further out than you can see over the horizon, but it's, it's worth the effort to put it in now. Um, and frankly, not viewing it as a chore or not viewing it as a, um, you know, a, a, the price to pay to get into venture. But, you know, I, I find that people who are most successful networking really enjoy it. Right. So seeking that, um, those learnings um, and, and, and then other things that can be done, obviously more, like imminently, if you're looking to raise now is, you know, there are a number of uh, incubators, accelerators, um, prizes and awards, um, you know, seeking those uh, as, as, as much as you can, getting up on stage, being in front of a broader audience so that you, you know, leverage the, the people that are in the room, um, even if you don't necessarily uh, sit down one-on-one -on -one with them right away. Um, they know of you. You can reference those activities. Um, so sort of aligning yourself with some of those brands that are out there, I think, is a good way to uh, to do it. Um, and I guess the other thing is, is just making it clear as people get to know you that you are an expert in your domain. You know, whatever that is that you're starting a company to do, um, 
I mean, I'm always most impressed by people who have just sat down um, and become foremost experts in anything that they can gather on this and educate me, educate everybody around us so that um, number one, it speaks, you know, it makes us want to either invest in you. And number two, uh, it certainly makes us feel better about introducing you to other people we know in our industry to help you, um, even if we can't invest or don't, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be investing in that stage or something. So I feel 10 times better when a founder sits there and does a t terrific job of convincing me they've done their homework, they have their head on straight, they are committed, um, they're asking for what's reasonable, they have big ambitions, and if I introduce them to somebody else, I'm not going to be embarrassed uh, because, you know, uh, of, of the, their lack of knowledge, for instance, or something. And so that's that's a huge part of it to me. Yeah. And yeah, one, thank you for that advice. It's definitely amazing. And I guess one of the hottest topics right now is definitely COVID-19. And given that you invest directly into the healthcare space, I'm just curious to know your thoughts around it. Do you believe that um, COVID-19 has maybe like sparked a lot of innovation in the space? Um, and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's rocked the world, no question about it. No matter where you are, it's there's some impact, right? And so, in healthcare venture, it's um, it's been certainly central. My, our fund, Action Potential, is affiliated with GlaxoSmithKline, so we're uh, a corporate fund, one of their two corporate funds, and um, so we've seen our portfolio companies either uh, determine if they have potential therapies for COVID that they're evaluating, um, companies that uh, were certainly uh, developing possible diagnostics, um, GSK and the big pharma companies are certainly working together and in partnership with, with one another and startups to uh, be part of that. In fact, my old boss, uh, Monsef Salawi is now considered the, um, I don't know what his formal title is, but the vaccine uh, uh, czar for the US government um, and considering what you know trying to push resources towards the most promising vaccines in the space so yeah. um, there are a lot of activities proactively going after how to treat this um, condition and and the and the sort of the ripple effects of it uh, things like um, you know making sure diagnostics like ultrasound imaging are there for more rapid triaging of patients um, respiratory Ventilators are there to treat patients that are more severely on the spectrum of their disease um, or severity of their disease. And then all of our companies, along with all the other venture capitalists that have looked at the industries that they're targeting are impacted one way or the other. Um, you know, unlike say hospitality and entertainment, other things that have been very uh, uh, impacted you know, in, in healthcare development, it's usually about, are you selling to your customers? Has that been disrupted by virtue of not being able to be face-to-face -face with people um, and, and travel limitations? Or are you developing a new product, in fact, running a clinical trial that's now been disrupted because patients can't get back into the hospital to have their, you know, uh, follow-up appointments and, and clinical endpoints measured? Um, you know, those are the biggest impacts, I would say, to the startups that we work on. Um, and thankfully, people are getting creative there too, telemedicine, telehealth, and uh, considering that in trial design before they execute on a big expensive clinical trial uh, to take into account that some of these things may pop up again or that there may be another wave of COVID or what have you. So yeah, everybody's thinking about it, um, and certainly cash is king right now. People are 
trying to load the coffers to weather the storm um, if, it, yeah. if, if things get tough. Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest takeaways in, in terms of healthcare is all of the massive gaps within the space and how I guess innovation was really needed before COVID, but it's definitely needed now. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think creative approaches to, um, to business models and flexible uh, products that kind of treat where people may be doing their work, you know, how they're spending their free time, how they're spending their money. Um, all those things have to be accounted for in, in, in business models right now. And I think all investors are asking the questions. Yeah. So I guess one um, last question that we have before our, our time is up. Can you tell us about any key resources that has helped you as a VC or that you recommend for founders? It's a good question. I mean, I, to me, the biggest resources, um, I always have to, you know, thank the folks who have um, helped, you know, with scholarships and, and, and um, helped me and, and a lot of people I know get the training that we needed. So there's a, the gem foundation is another uh, uh, fellowship for underrepresented minorities um, studying engineering. And so they, they supported me through grad school um, you know, GE corporate foundations that have also supported me through fellowships, I think are critical. When you get to the venture resources and, and founder resources, absolutely, um, you know, the, for, for in the healthcare sort of, uh, you know, fierce biotech, fierce med tech, um, the daily publications that come out with, um, you know, the latest in that field of what transactions occurred, what financings occurred, what whose products have been approved, um, where are key people in the industry moving, um, just as good reading to do. And again, it should be, it's something that I think you can always sustain if you truly find it interesting and enjoyable. So making sure you're picking an area you really like to, to, to stay on top of. Um, I think, you know, there are a variety of, uh, like Dan Primax, uh, venture capital publications and, and other dailies that, you know, when I was, especially when I was getting earlier into venture, I was just reading those consistently um, just to know who's who in the industry and what activities are going on. So that when I did sit down with somebody over a coffee or now zoom, you know, I could cite the latest headlines. And again, it's always about how do you give um, and, and before you know, asking for something. And so, you know, just being on top of things and being able to connect dots for other people in the field um, is, is a great sign of like, I'm on top of this, I'm serious about this. Um, and I'm not just sort of, uh, you know, kind of just playfully considering this as an option for my career. It's, it's, it's what I'm going to do no matter what. And uh, hopefully, you know, the person on the other side of the table can, can be a part of that and, and help. Um, you know, for founder resources, absolutely. Um, you know, the the I would say the the again back to sort of the um, you know I, I know J and J has an innovation center. Um, you know, there are a variety. There's Rock Health in San Francisco and has a national uh, presence now. There are a variety of you know industry specific ones. Not to mention Y Combinator and, and many of those. That honestly, even if you're not um, a, a member of those, if, if you can attend those conferences, those meetings, uh, it's a great place to, to in, under more normal circumstances to rub elbows and, um, and, and, you know, 
start to form some relationships that oftentimes come back to, didn't we meet at that conference? Didn't we meet, you know, uh, or didn't so-and-so put us in touch? And so I just think back to this networking, uh, there's, there's very little that beats it. Um, and so it's probably the hardest time now to do all that with COVID and do that over Zoom. Um, but, but I think that will, that will only be for a period of time and hopefully we're back to kind of more normal sort of circumstances. Oh yeah, this is the new normal though. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, right? I think I think it's going to be tough for this to be the new normal forever. I mean, I think this will be a big part of how we interact and hopefully diminishes like the unnecessary travel people were doing for a long a long time. But, you know, there's there's nothing that uh replaces a handshake and someone looking at somebody speaking to somebody face to face uh in person. So I think that's coming back too. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for those resources and also just for volunteering your time to allow us to learn more about your journey and gain knowledge from your experience. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. No, and, and if I could just make one more comment that I don't think uh, I had a chance to mention, you know, one thing about this industry and this, frankly, just working uh, as a minority in, in any work setting is that I know I struggle with was um, how much to conform, how much to assimilate uh, into sort of the world that I was working into. And I, I, one thing that I've been really inspired, again, back to um, my friend Elliot Robinson at Black BC um, and, and a bunch of other people I've seen who sort of succeeded in their career and feel more comfortable too, is just to bring your true self to work, your honest self to work. And I think there's a difference between, I struggled with how much to assimilate and conform uh, to sort of corporate white America um, in my career, venture included. Um, and, I, and I think I didn't, I would say, I personally didn't bring myself, uh, my full self to work for many, many years. And, and I, w one thing I've learned in the process is, you know, there's one, the most important part is just communication, like your intellectual rigor, your smarts, but how do you communicate? And I do think conforming on uh, communication that works for a particular culture is, is important, um, knowing the language, the vernacular, the terminology. But after that, you know, there were a lot of things I didn't share about myself, and I don't think I came off as the rounded person that I am, you know, Puerto Rican, Latino, bilingual, and so forth. Um, I know leaving firms, venture firms, that I've left in the past uh, before joining this one, um, you know, on the way out, people were still surprised. Oh, you're bilingual. You speak Spanish. Where are you from? Oh. You're from Puerto Rico. You know, and like, wow. um, you know, it wasn't something that was front and center. Um, and and you know, I don't think that if you want if you want longevity in venture and if you want upward mobility.